Welcome to the Brown County Hour Halloween Special. This is Dave Seastrip. And Chuck Wills. And Jim Lemon, along with the rest of the crew. We have a collection of spooky stories to share with you in this podcast. Some are from previous episodes of our show, and some are brand new. And all of them come from the hills and hollers of Brown County. We have a three-part interview with paranormal researcher Chris McDaniel. Jim and I talked to him about his investigations on Bigfoot and Mothman, and then later in the show, he joins us again to talk about ghost investigations at the Crump Theater and serial killer Herb Baumeister's Fox Hollow Estate. You'll also hear Hondo Thompson's spooky story of Blackwater Hattie. Frank Jones reads the historic tale of Taylor Poe and plays his song Frankenstein Pockets. To wrap up the show, paranormal investigator Matthew Jackson returns to join Dave and I with his story of the real human skeleton he found in downtown Columbus. As we enter autumn and the jack-o'-lanterns begin to come out, the Brown County Hour likes to think of things that go bump in the night, or in tonight's case, things that may go bump in the woods. This is Chuck Wills along with Jim Lemon. Hi, Jim. Hey, guys. And we have the pleasure of speaking with Chris McDaniel, who is a paranormal researcher specializing in an array of fields, including general paranormal, UFOs, and cryptids, or what you may call Bigfoot. So welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's our pleasure. South Central Indiana is full of stories of otherworldly experiences, but I'd like to first talk about Bigfoot, since Brown County has a history of sightings and, and has all you know, the Bigfoot habitat. This may be a new subject for our audience. If you could give us a little background on yourself and what you do relating to the elusive Sasquatch. I'm an author of two books. I've been featured on Monsters and Mysteries of America on the Discovery Channel. Uh, like you said, I'm a paranormal researcher, which paranormal research is a wide variety of different topics, whether it's hauntings, cryptid creatures, uh, UFOs. So with the cryptid creatures, people uh, would send me emails and they'd tell me about their encounters. And I would pretty much go out and take a look and see what I can find. So what got you into this research originally? Back in 1984, me and my friends had heard a legend about a ghost sighting in Step Cemetery. So we thought we'd go out there and check it out. And lo and behold, things started happening. And uh, we seen an actual apparition of a lady, just like the legend says. Uh, from that point on, it got a little crazy and out of hand to where one of the individuals in the group started dabbling, uh, making like pentagrams in the gravel. With our own eyes, we watched this person fall down to the ground and their body just slid across the ground by itself, as if somebody had a hold of their shoulders and was dragging them off into the woods. Well, to make a long story short, we got him in the car, got him out of there, and it, it terrorized us enough that we had all these questions in our head, you know, how is this possible? But we didn't want to get involved with the hauntings anymore. But we wanted to talk to eyewitnesses, that had similar maybe encounter of some type sure. where I kind of turned toward cryptid investigations and so forth. And I also have a degree in wildlife uh, management, which steered me toward wildlife, Bigfoot, you know, cryptid animals that haven't been discovered yet. Anything that has to do with wildlife or cryptid creatures, you have my attention. Okay. Well, from my own experience, I'm sure it's much safer to go that direction because it's unlikely Bigfoot is going to show up at midnight in your basement. Right. Step Cemetery, is that near Morgan Monroe State Forest? Yes, that, that's in the Morgan Monroe State Forest. And uh, actually, there's been reports of Bigfoot seen near Step Cemetery. Give me a little bit of background on some of the stories that you have heard or maybe things that you've investigated kind of around that area? That's where a lot of reports that I, I get come from. There's a case I call the, the case of the dead coyote. And this is right on the Bartholomew and Brown County line. This is probably about four years ago. Some people were out at their bonfire, and they noticed a tall figure. They couldn't make out any features, but it was standing behind a tree and kept stepping out, peeking at them. And uh, they said there was an eerie feeling about this. You know, even in the air, they said, you could just feel that something eerie was going on. So they contacted me, 
and I went out to their house, looked around the area where the tree was. I, I didn't see anything, but I went on down the road and uh, less than a quarter of a mile is the power line clearings. Yeah. And I thought I'd walk this uh, power line clearings because in most cases, 95 times out of a hundred, I can ask an eyewitness how far is the power line clearings, and it's always less than a quarter of a mile. Amazing. Interesting. Amazing. Yeah. The, the theory is people believe that they may use this like a highway. Yeah. It's easier to travel in an open clearing than it is to travel through a, a thick wooded area. Sure. Yeah. The underbrush, et cetera. Yeah. I went ahead and I started walking the power line clearing, and it was probably about 100 yards off the road, the dirt road, that I'd found a dead coyote. And I have pictures of this coyote. I, I even have a video of it. The coyote had a footprint on it, a muddy footprint, and it was huge. Wow. This coyote, you know, he, he's dead. And he felt squishy. So I'm looking around the area, and lo and behold, I find a footprint in the mud uh, that has toes. And I'm wondering who in the world would have been out here barefooted. <laughs> mud. So I went ahead and I... I collected the coyote, took pictures of the footprint. I took it to a veterinarian's office and I asked them if they would do a neocropsy on it and tell me what they think the coyote may have died from. I took video and this is on YouTube, so you can actually watch the whole video of them doing the neocropsy of the coyote. The best that they can determine is that it was blunt force to the ribs. And I asked them if a car had hit that coyote, would that coyote be able to travel and they said it was instant death. Whatever wow. hit this coyote was instant death. What's strange is they found a piece of metal inside the coyote. And they had no idea what this was. I, I went ahead and I collected the, the piece of metal. And I wrapped it up. And I kept it in a Ziploc bag. Now, I know some people, the, the head people of MUFON here in Indiana Chapter. And uh, they wanted me to pretty much get rid of this little piece of metal because they were concerned they get a lot of reports of ufos and bigfoot sightings together and they were concerned that it might be some type of a, a tracer or something you know, <laughs> i don't get into all that <laughs> well honestly that crossed my mind okay. I, I have i've heard people talk about the ufo bigfoot connection mm -hmm. and honestly I, I thought they were kidding i thought it was I mean, how outlandish is that to think that yeah, Bigfoot that and UFOs would be connected? So what became of that piece of metal? You know, I have no idea. I put it okay. in a drawer and I've not been able to find it for about a year or so. That's a mystery in itself then. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you're saying that you've been able to identify a lot of Bigfoot sightings within a, sh a short distance of the power line corridors. Right. If there's a little bit of predictability to that, then why can't you set up trail cams? Why haven't there been more great pictures of Sasquatch? Usually when I do uh, go to a location, I'll set up trail cams along the power lines, and I've never been able to catch anything. A lot of people will ask, you know, that that's the big thing about this mystery is why can't we get solid proof and evidence that this creature exists? There's a lot of theories out there, and one theory does go toward are they kind of a paranormal creature instead of being a uh, undiscovered animal? Where do you fall on that? I believe people are seeing something. I have hundreds of eyewitnesses. I've watched eyewitnesses relate to me what they experienced. And as they relate to it, it's like they're reliving it. And they break down crying. I I, when you see a person break down crying with raw emotions, telling a stranger their story, I and mean, that that kind of hits you, you know. It's like this person's not making this up. They they seen yeah. something. They're trying to reason with it, but they don't know how. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so I believe that they're seeing something, but why can't we get the evidence? One of my uh, most favorite stories. I didn't actually talk to the individual. This is a story that was passed down from a park ranger to an individual that I knew that also did Bigfoot research and. Uh, it's got a dark side to it, but it's also kind of uh, enlightening as well. Okay. That, uh, this individual, and this is around uh, Brown County, I think, near Story, Indiana. Uh, okay. So right. this individual, their kids had had a female cat, and she just kept, 
kept having litter after litter after litter. And uh, this guy was getting tired of all these kittens trying to find homes for the kittens. So this last litter that she had had, he took like, I think maybe a couple of the kittens that they couldn't find homes for. But that when his kids were at school, he picked up the kittens and he went out into the woods with them. He was going to take care of the kittens himself. Out in the, the middle of the woods, he found a place where there was a big rock. He set the kittens down and he picked up the big rock. And as he's lifting the rock, he looks up and there's this big hairy bipedal creature, Bigfoot, standing in front of him. Bigfoot steps up to him, pushes him down. The guy falls down. The guy wets himself in the process. And what's really funny is, according to this report, that Bigfoot starts scolding him, pointing his finger, and was grunting and making all kinds of noises, going, ur, 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 like a language to him. Picked up the kittens. Bigfoot picks up the kittens and took off walking away. <laughs> so if, if there's no way. truth to that story, that's the best Bigfoot story I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> so I got scolded by a Bigfoot is a classic <laughs> magazine uh, title, I think. Oh my gosh! So Bigfoot, Bigfoot has a moral compass. Yeah, <laughs> he must. Absolutely. That is incredible. <laughs> well, some people can't see the forest for the trees now, can they? They call them lies, but. There's legends, all right, but there ain't no lies. But I tell you what, there's things what go on back there. People talk about it, and people like yourself, you think it's all just stories, but it ain't no story. You, you ever hear a Hattie, old swamp witch live back in there? Well, I'll tell you, old Blackwater Hattie, she lived back in that swamp. Uh-huh, back where them strange green reptiles crawl. Back in there, the snakes hang thick from them cypress trees. They're like sausage from a smokehouse wall. You know that swamp's alive, boy. It's got a thousand eyes, and you can bet all of them are gonna be looking at you. So you stay off that track back to Hattie Shack, back in that black bayou. You hear me? I never lied to you yet, as far as you know. Way up the road from Hattie Shack, there lies the sleepy little Okeechobee town. And round there just talking about the Swamp Witch Hattie, that was enough to lock them in when the sun goes down. There was legends of what she done, and there's rumors of what she'd do. And all that kept the folks off the track, a Hattie Shack, back in that black bayou. I don't know what you think you're doing going back there. One day in that town, one day brought the rain, and that rain, it just stayed on. Till that swamp water overflowed. Mosquitoes and the fever grabbed the town like a fist. Yeah. Old Doc Jackson, he was the first to go. Some say the plague was brought by Hattie. There was talk of a hanging, too. But all that talk, it just got shackled by the howls and the cackles the pals of that big black bayou. <laughs> well, they didn't do nothing. But early one morn, between dark and dawn, when the shadows filled the sky, there came an unseen caller on that town where all that hoped run dry. In the square there was found a big black round a vat full of gargling brew. And they whispered sounds when them folks gathered around, right? They whispered, that came from the Black Bayou. Well, there ain't much pride when you're trapped inside a slowly sinking ship. So they scooped up that liquid, that deep and green. The <laughs> whole town took a sip. But I'll tell you what, fever went away. The very next day, the skies again were blue. Folks started saying, let's thank old Hattie for saving our town. You believe that? <laughs> they said, we're going to fetch her from that black bayou. Well, they, they weren't going to go back there at all. Now they're going to go fetch her. It's the dumbest thing I ever heard. Well, here's what happened. So, so, so party of 10 of the town's best men, you can imagine who they were, 
Well, they headed in for old Hattie's shack. They said, swamp wind magic is useful and good. I guess they figured they gonna bring old Hattie back. Lord, I don't know what they was thinking. Oh, they never found old Hattie. Hell, they never even found the shack. And they never made that trip back in. Cause a parchment note was all they found. It was tacked on the stump. All it says was, don't you come looking again. That's the truth. That's the story of it. <laughs> and now part two of our interview with Chris McDaniel, paranormal investigator, talking about cryptid creatures like Mothman and the Dogman. So when we think about other cryptids, Mothman comes to mind. Maybe Bigfoot isn't that far removed from some of these others that seem to be more of another dimension, spiritual, something along those right. lines. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the Mothman. I, I yeah. did have a, a sighting of the Mothman in uh, Greensburg, Indiana, and that was uh, probably about three years ago. When they contacted me, and, and most of the time, people will contact me through email. Okay. And uh, so they gave me their phone number. I talked to them. I went out and interviewed them. And they were first reporting a Bigfoot sighting. And they said, we've seen a Bigfoot outside of Greensburg, Indiana. And this is uh, to the east of Greensburg, a road that follows a railroad track. They kind of stopped and they were hesitant about the report halfway through. And they said, we're going to describe to you what we've seen. They said it didn't look like what people described as a Bigfoot, with, you know, kind of bipedal, hairy-looking, monkey-looking thing. They said what we've seen was about an eight-foot-tall owl. And they said it had red glowing eyes. It didn't have a neck, but it looked like an owl. And I said, well, that's not Bigfoot. <laughs> that sounds more like a Mothman sighting. I found, I found that kind of interesting. So being that Mothman is associated with a disaster, you know, people claim that, you know, something disastrous is going to happen. For quite some time after that, I kept track on whether a disaster happened in that location, maybe a train derail or something like that, but nothing that I know of ever happened in that area. That description, is that a common description? I mean, have you found that to be, a, there's some continuity there? I've been to Point Pleasant, West Virginia, before the Mothman Prophecy movie came out, and uh, I talked to the locals there. It was actually a reporter that tagged it, the Mothman. The locals actually called it the Birdman because they said it go. looks more like a bird. In England, Europe, they don't refer to it as the Mothman. They refer to it as the Owlman. They say it looks uh. just like an owl. There we go. Interesting. You have come across evidence. You know, the evidence that most people talk about are the footprints, mm -hmm. uh, the occasional sightings, uh, wood knocks, howls at night. Have you come across any more direct contact, anything where somebody has been truly up close and personal? Crosley Fish and Wildlife, uh, just south of North Vernon, Indiana. There was an individual that had a, he actually had two sightings. And uh, the first sighting, the creature was on uh, bipedal and was following him. I think a week later he went out fishing in that area and he seen, he thought might be the same creature, bipedal, dark hair, but it got down on all fours and chased him out of there. The first time he felt like the creature was just being uh, observant, you know, just kind of watching him and being curious. The second time he felt like he was running for his life. That that's real important because I think it's two different creatures of what he's seen. Linda Godfrey, she was a reporter up in Wisconsin, and uh, they started getting reports about werewolves in Wisconsin, Elkhorn, Wisconsin. So Linda, she did a, a lot of investigation. Linda calls it the American werewolf. So when we we actually went to Crosley, thinking that we're looking for Bigfoot, and uh, we found two separate tracks and footprints. The first footprint was like a, a human footprint, but it was 16 inches long. You could see the digits, the toes, and this was, I think, in the last part of November. So you start asking yourself, what is a person doing out here in November barefooted? And this was along the riverbanks, so it was in sand. 
as we were there that night, something threw a rock at us. We, we did hear some whistles, which some people associate with Bigfoot, whistling mm-hmm. like a, like a come here type whistle. Yeah. Um, but the other footprint that we had found, we got pictures of it before uh, it actually crumbled apart. That's cool. Linda Godfrey, she's seen this footprint, and she said that is not Bigfoot footprint. That's the same type of footprint that in Wisconsin they refer to as the American werewolf, and in Michigan they refer to it as the dogman. And so Linda Godfrey, she believes that this might be a casting of that type of creature, and right. her theory is that these two creatures uh, compete against each other for food. What was odd is in between, we'd found these footprints probably less than 50 yards from each other. There was deer tracks, and it seemed like both footprints were following the deer tracks. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. So Dogman is actually a, a different creature than Bigfoot. It's not just two different words for the same thing. Yeah, it's two different creatures. Don't put your hands in the Frankenstein pocket. You don't know what's inside. Don't put your hands in the Frankenstein pocket. You don't know what's hiding inside my Frankenstein. Don't put your hands in the Frankenstein pockets. You don't know what's in there. Don't put your hands in my Frankenstein pockets. Where it's been, you don't know. About a what's in back with Chris McDaniel and his true ghost stories. Tis the season with Halloween coming up upon us. It's always good to talk about uh, the the unseen. Uh, I know that that's part of what you do as a paranormal researcher. Uh, What can you tell us about that? Are you familiar with the Crump Theater in Columbus, Indiana? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the Crump Theater, a lot of people claim that it's haunted. Um, my wife, uh, she was a very strong skeptic, did not believe in ghosts whatsoever. Uh, we had actually went to St. Augustine, Florida, to the lighthouse, and we heard disembodied voice of a little girl. My wife saying they have a tape recorder inside the wall. Uh, we heard some banging 
on inside the uh, lighthouse from the top. We climbed the steps, and there's nobody there. And my wife is like, uh, there had to be somebody up here, and they're hiding somewhere now. Very strong skeptic. She was going to have to see it with her own eyes. Yeah, yeah. So the Crump Theater is where she took a turn. <laughs> um, she was in a room that they used to call the crybaby room. Back when it was the theater, uh, if babies start crying, the, the mothers would take the babies to a certain room and try to uh, calm them down. My wife, she, she knows for a fact she was the only one in this room. Just kind of a nonchalant way, she says, she's got her tape recorder going. She says, how many ghosts are in this theater? Well, she didn't hear a reply with her own ears, but when we played back, you hear a little girl say, eight. There's eight. Wow. To go a little bit further, because it was actually the current theater that kind of put us on the map to where the big question is with a lot of paranormal investigators with hauntings is, is this from the dead? Is, mm-hmm. is this people that have passed on? Some people believe anything that deals with hauntings is demonic spirits. Um, mm-hmm. Other people believe it might just be echoes of the time, you know, that just echoes from the past somehow still bouncing around. We'd picked up EVPs of a, a man with an Irish accent. And the EVPs were crystal clear as if this person was sitting right beside us. One of the EVPs say, me and my wife's talking, and we're walking away from a certain area. And she turns to me and says, did you get the meter? And I said, yes, I have the meter. All of a sudden, there's a man on the voice going, I dust this floor. As in an Irish accent, as if he's given me an order, I dust this floor. A different group of people caught the same man with the Irish accent. They're setting up a flashlight, and they're doing a little flashlight technique to see if it'll come on and off when they ask questions. As they're setting it up, one of the investigators say, all right, I've got it set. I'm going to back off now. And you hear the man with the Irish accent say, I, it's off. I'll go back to the box. So we presented this evidence to uh, the carekeeper of the Crump Theater, and she listened to it, and she was just amazed because back in the uh, early 70s, she worked at the Crump Theater. Her boss was from Ireland, uh, Kevin Prendergast. She said he had the thick Irish accent, and when she listened to the tape, you know, the, the recordings, she's like, to the best of my knowledge, that sounds like Kevin Prendergast. Oh, my gosh. So, and she wow. did say that the box that he was referring to was where you actually take the tickets. She said that's what they call the box. Wow. That's cool. What yeah. a great story. So I always lean toward this is from people that have passed on. Maybe they're visiting locations mm-hmm. that were, you know, they enjoyed uh, just reliving that. Sure. Um, I yeah. know that other spirits are probably reliving a horrifying moment of, you know, whether when they may have passed on. That That's incredible. And, you know, it, it seems to me that there may be something about theaters that really makes a lot of activity happen. I, I used to work at the street from the Rivoli Theater in Indianapolis. It's been uh, undergoing restoration at this point, but before they had torn most of it down and started rebuilding, there were a number of investigators that went in there and had experiences with lights and shadows and shadow people and voices and tons yeah. of EVPs. And it just seems like theaters, maybe they're, they're kind of a magnet for this. I don't know why. Sure. A holding tank. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or, you know, a, a moth to a flame kind of thing. I don't know. Do you have any other uh, local ghost stories that you'd like to share? I have hundreds. <laughs> <laughs> I, bet. I bet. Has there been anything that really just shocked you, really just startled you that you weren't expecting? Yeah, that was in Ohio. Uh, it wasn't local, but I'll, I'll quickly tell you. Yeah. We was yeah. at a, a school that was uh, supposed to be haunted. It used to be an elementary school. And uh, I broke one of the cardinal rules of not going off by yourself. You always want an investigator with you so they can either, you know, back up what you experienced or, you know, for also uh, safety measures, stay with uh, another person. 
And uh, I broke that rule by stepping outside of the school, thought I'd just get a quick picture of the school. As I'm looking through the lens, it, it happened so quick that there was a figure on top of the school and it come flying down at me and right like bum rushed up on me. I am so quick that you could, I could barely even blink. And I flinched and I thought when I flinched, I thought I'm going to land on the ground and wake up on the ground. But I flinched and I looked around and there was nothing there. Right. Wow. And I, but when I flinched, I hit that shutter button and I looked real quick and sure enough, I caught it on film and it's a lady. You can see the lady's face right up in the camera looking at you. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. That is amazing. I bet you do. You know, one thing that uh, Matthew and I talked about last year was during investigations, his experience had kind of been, what he tells me is he tries to go in kind of agnostic. He's not there to prove or disprove. He's just there to have an experience. But what, what he explained was that it seems like the intention of the people that go there is kind of amplified by the environment. If somebody goes with the intention of seeing something rough or scary, that that's probably what they're going to get. Right. Have, have you experienced anything like that where it's kind of a self-fulfilling yeah, prophecy? Yeah, I did. There's a location called a Fox Hollow and a Fox Hollow is up in Indianapolis. Okay. Um, there's a, a dark history there at Fox Hollow. It, do you know this history? Is that Fox Hollow yeah. farm? Yes. Oh boy, yes. you went there. So you know about the? I think his name's Herb Meister or something Herb, like that, that. Okay, yeah. For for our audience that may not know about this, this is the estate of Herb Baumeister, and right. it turns out he was uh, a serial killer living in our midst. Wow. That he he would go to gay bars and traveled all along Highway 70 and picked people up and brought them back to his estate and murdered them yeah so you actually went there chris yeah uh we was actually filming there for the sci-fi channel and uh we so we had a group of people that had paid to go on the tour and the sci-fi channel was there filming um in the midst of this in the basement in, in a living room where herb would kill his victims something grabbed me by the throat as i was talking Oh, and it just, it, it closed, I mean, it, it just was strangling me. Something was strangling me. I could feel it around my throat. And all of a sudden, I had, I went through all these emotions. I went through, uh, the first thing, I was scared. The second feeling that I had, and this was real quick, second feeling was anger. I was mad. And then I, I wanted to cry. I was so sad. And I had to turn away from everybody, run out this glass uh, sliding doors that they had, jump down on the ground and started puking. And I wanted to cry, but in front of all these strangers, I fought back the tears. I was like, don't cry, don't do this. And uh, I believe that I'm, that's the way that Herb would kill the victims is by strangulation. I believe that it was showing me what they actually experienced the last moments of their life was they were scared, then they were angry, and now they're sad. Oh, my gosh. What yeah. an incredible experience. Yeah. Now, did anybody notice, um, surely they did, your reaction where you ran out and were they uh, oh, yeah. confused by every, that? Every, everybody was focused on me at that moment because I couldn't hardly talk. I couldn't, you know, and they were focused. They could see something was going on with me. So in a situation like that, I mean, obviously there's a little bit of pressure from producers and whatnot. How do you, how do you recover from that and, and get your senses back? And, it, and It took a while. I, I actually had to step away from the whole investigation, mm-hmm. take a break and just, you know, think about what just happened and try mm-hmm. to make sense of it. Well, it not only did it happen to you, but it was acknowledged by everybody else in the room. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that was clearly a thing. It happened. Yeah. 
Wow. wow. Well, and from from what I've heard and read about that place, you're not the only one to have uh, an extreme experience on the property. Really? Yeah. The people that lived there later on, I don't know if this is before or after your investigation, uh, particularly around the carriage house and the swimming pool, people would have extreme experiences, right. uh, both personally, like what Chris had, or incidental things like things moving around, vacuum cleaners being unplugged, etc. <laughs> um, boy, that's incredible. Yeah. With having an experience like that, that's um, pretty intense. Is there anything that you do before, during, or after uh, an investigation to kind of protect yourself either in the moment or keep something from following you home, anything like that? I don't. We used to have members of our group that would pretty much just turn around as we're getting ready to leave and say, you stay here. Don't follow us home. You belong here. You don't belong with me. I never did get involved with that. Now, me and my wife, we have had experiences after investigations at our own house. And uh, our rule of thumb is ignore it. Pretend that it's not there. If you don't acknowledge it, it'll go back to where it came from. And usually it does. Uh, usually it stops. After a couple of days, usually it stops. If somebody has something for you to investigate, are you willing to hear from people? Or do you want to stay away from opening that door? We kind of have mixed feelings about that. Um, okay. We, we want to help people, but uh, we used to be uh, part of what's called the Order of the Exorcist, and it was for the Catholic Church. Okay. Uh, before the Catholic Church will actually go in and do anything, such as an exorcism, they want paranormal researchers to go in and get the evidence, provide evidence to them that this person's actually possessed. There's only one time I can think that there was actually a normal experience going on. All the other times, the person that just had some mental issues came off their medicine and needed to go back onto it. If it sounds legit, we'll go and investigate. Chris, thank you so much for being with us. This has been a fascinating time talking about your paranormal research. We've covered everything from Bigfoot to hauntings, and it's been great. Thank you for being with us and sharing your expertise. Thank you for having me. Hi, everybody. This is Frank Jones. Today, I'll be reading the story of Talipo, a true Brown County legend. It was originally told by Grover Brown, who served as an educator in Brown County for some 51 years. It was originally told to him by John Cox of Morgantown. And it's a story of an old loner who lives deep in the woods of Tennessee who experiences a supernatural event by a creature called Talipo. Starts like this. A long time ago, way down in the deep woods of Tennessee, a man lived all by himself. This man's house had just one room, and that was his parlor, living room, bedroom, dining room, and kitchen, too. In one end of this log cabin was a big open fireplace where the man cooked and ate his meals. One night he was sitting before the fire half asleep when the most curious of animals crept in through the half open door and it had a great long tail. Awakening, the man reached over for his hatchet and whack the varmint's tail right off first lick. That varmint ran out into the night screaming. And the man, kind of fool-like, cooked and ate the tail. He lived by himself and was hurting for food. He went to bed, but he had not been asleep very long until he was awakened. And he heard something right outside the cabin wall sounded as if it was trying to get in. He listened. He heard it scratch, scratch, and scratch again. Then he heard it wail. Taily-po! Taily-po! 
All I want's me taily pole. Now this man had three dogs. One dog was named Inno. The other dog was named Uno. And the third dog was named Company Cocalico. Quite a long name. This man called his dogs. He said they came billing out from under the, the house and chased the varmint way down into the woods. Now the man went back to sleep, but not about midnight he was awakened again. He listened. He heard something outside the cabin wall. Same as before, scratching like it was trying to get in. He heard it scratch, scratch, scratch again, and he heard it say, Taily po, Taily po. All I want's my Taily po. Again, this man called his dogs. This time, they came rushing around the corner of the house, and they caught up with this varmint. And they tore down the fence trying to kill it. And this time, they chased it way down into the woods, down past the woods and into the big swamp. Now, this took quite a while, and the man just went back to sleep. Away long after midnight, he was awakened again. He listened, and off in the distance, he could hear something saying, Taily po, you know I know, all I want's me taily po. Again, this man called his dogs because he was frightened. But this time, they failed to come. That varmint had either killed or lost them down in the big swamp. The man went back to sleep. The next time he woke up, it was almost time for the break of day. He thought he heard something in the room, and he listened. Right down by the foot of his bed, he heard something scratching and scratching. He peered out from under the covers, and pretty soon he saw two sharp pointed ears coming slowly up over the foot of the bed. Then he saw two fiery red eyes and this varmint crawled up over the foot of the bed. He could feel the sharp claws through the bedclothes. It crept right upon his chest. He could feel its hot breath in his face. It looked at him right dead in the eye and said, Taily po, Taily po, you know I know all I wants me Taily po. This man was frightened, just as you or I would be. He was scared so badly he could not open his mouth for a long time. And then he just yelled, I haven't got your taily pole. And then the critter said, yes, you has. And it scratched him all over to pieces. And some folks say it got its taily pole. Now there's nothing left of this old cabin way down in the big woods of Tennessee except for an old stone chimney. But when the moon shines brightly and the wind blows down the valley, you can hear something say, Taily and then die away. We have back with us Matthew Jackson, who you may remember from the Halloween special of 2019, talking about all things paranormal. Uh, welcome back to the show, Matthew. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, this is Chuck Wills, and uh, Dave is with us. Hi there. Glad to be aboard. So, um, Matthew, since uh, Halloween is back upon us, we wanted to have you back because we've heard rumor that you have a skeleton in your closet, literally. Literally, I do. I actually have a human skeleton. Well, not everybody can say that. <laughs> well, everyone that's alive technically can. You can say you have one but may not be in a session. <laughs> yeah. You have a real human skeleton. It sounds like there's a, a story about how you came to have this. Can you kind of give us the background? Yeah, I can. It actually starts back about 11 years ago. I was working in a place downtown Columbus that is a historic building on Washington Street on the sixth block. 
And it seems like anyone who ever spent any time actually working in that building had their own little ghost story, you know, talking about the, the building being haunted and so forth. And so in my discussions of other people who worked in the building and other businesses, our next door neighbor, I happened to ask him if his employees or if he ever had any experiences of anything strange happening in the building. And he came back with, well, if you saw what was upstairs of MySpace, you would definitely uh, wouldn't be surprised that odd things may occur. He basically went on to say that his half of the building is owned by a very old uh, secret society. It's, it's a secret society, one of those fraternal lodges that at one time they were pretty prominent, but they've kind of uh, faded away. They're called the Knights of Pythias. And they're kind of like, you know, the Masons or the Odd Fellows. And anyway, he basically went on to say that even though the National Charter still owned his half of the building and he paid his rent to them, that all the local members had basically gotten too old to make the climb up the staircase and uh, he hadn't seen anyone around there for years. And he asked me if I wanted to go upstairs and check it out. And of course, me being the fool that I am, I took the key and went up there and Lo and behold, this room that I came across was set up kind of like a temple. And there was like a, a circle of chairs and there was an altar and like a throne, swords, beds of nails, you name it. And also in the middle of all this was a casket with a real articulated human skeleton that they used as part of their rituals. So I've known that the skeleton was up there for about 11 years and recently, uh, the guy who let me up there, he bought the building. He reached out. He found a group of Pythias that still meet up in the state of Indiana. And he contacted them to see if they wanted to come down and maybe take some of those items with them. And a few guys did. They came. They loaded a few things up. But they left the skeleton. And you would think as a secret society, if there was ever a secret that you might want to keep close to your, your, yourself, that would be the fact that you used uh, human skeletons in your rituals. But they said that they no longer use stuff like that and they left it there. He really didn't know what to do with it. And me just kind of being like a you know resident weirdo. I don't know if I'm uh, flattered that he thought of me or if I should take it as an insult, but I was given the opportunity to actually acquire the skeleton. Amazing. It is amazing. <laughs> so I've got two questions. Yeah. Uh, one, how does a group like them get a skeleton to begin with? And then, of course, two, what are you going to do with a skeleton, you know, beyond the cool factor of having your own skeleton? <laughs> that That's the funny part. Ethically, after doing research into how these groups would have acquired uh, a human skeleton like this, uh, it, no matter how you look at it, it's fairly disturbing. Um, I estimate that that temple or lodge or whatever they want to call it had probably been up in that space at least since 1907. And back then, it was relatively easy to acquire human remains. There were actually catalogs where you could just get on and, and order these things. And they would provide skeletons to, um, you know, medical people, to, you know, classrooms, and also to these fraternal lodges. But the way that they got the skeletons, uh, most of the time usually involved poor people who died and were left unclaimed. There's also a lot of grave robbing that went on back then. And so it was really kind of hard for me to wrap my mind around that this was somebody's loved one. This was somebody's child who ultimately became a prop um, with or without consent <laughs> for, uh, you know, a strange group of people who, for whatever meaning they had behind their rituals, which is still kind of up in the air, uh, would use that just for, you know, almost their entertainment. So uh, really left me, leaves me with kind of an uncomfortable feeling uh, about the whole, the whole scenario. You know, there's not a real positive way of looking at it. But my, my plan as of right now is I've been talking to the University of Indianapolis, one of the professors up there that run the forensics department. And uh, she's basically offered if I would donate the skeleton to the school that they would curate it for me and then do a full workup study on it to possibly, uh, they, they doubt that, that there's any viable DNA that would allow them to maybe try to see who this person was or find its descendants. But they're confident they could determine the age, the race, the sex, things like that. And, and there might be a clue there as far as like, how um, maybe the person died. There might be some telltale sign there. So that's basically where everything's at at the moment. 
Boy, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. Basically, they're going to be looking for like knife cuts on the bones or, uh, uh, you know, burn marks or whatever. I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. this skeleton was never made into the soup. Um, right. But they did something. I mean, it's, you know, um, the illustrations on your website showed uh, swords and some kind of decorative situation that maybe invoking spirits or who knows what they were doing, right? <laughs> Yeah, I, I think a lot of it had to do with some hazing type rituals as far as they would lead like new members in as part of their almost like swearing in. They would have them come in blindfolded and have them kneel in front of the coffin and hold on to the bones and repeat all these oaths that would basically, you know, they were swearing their their secrecy, uh, you know, the, or the group secrets until... Uh, their death until their body would fill one of those boxes, so to speak. And, you know, basically you go and take the, the group secrets to their grave. And if there's any more like, you know, arcane or dark secrets that the group really uh, held on to that I, I've not figured out yet. Uh, and, and, and it was very important to the Pythias to not be atheist. Right. I just watched your uh, video. And uh huh. I'm really curious about the device you were using to try to interface with the uh, uh, dearly departed, shall we say? What was the name of that device? Uh, it, it is a, it's called a reverse speech ghost box, which in, oh. in the whole uh, pseudoscience of ITC, which is instrumental transcommunication, where people have rigged basically radios and electronic devices to try and, you know, see if anything would manipulate it to actually provide any type of communication. I was just curious by taking a device like that up there while the skeleton was still in the lodge if any messages might come across that would give me to any clues as to the skeleton itself or maybe its use or, you know, a lot of people theorize that things like that might have attachments to them or, or be a haunted object themselves. So I was just kind of testing the waters out of curiosity to see if there might be anything there that would, uh, you know, kind of lead me down that path, you know? Well, I find it interesting that uh, from the sound of the communications you were getting on, uh, I mean, my first impression is most of the uh, spirits were not all that happy you were there. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, but I'm there, surprised there, at how, uh, how profane their language was. Yeah, uh, that's something that seems to be fairly common with some of the experiments that I've, uh, I've, uh, I've done. And, you know, there's just really the, the unfortunate thing about it. There's really no way to set parameters on an experiment like that, that, basically says, hey, you're in this location, so you're only going to possibly communi communicate with anything associated with that area. Uh, I think it's much like, uh, you know, somebody experimenting with an Ouija board. Uh, you just really have no controls over who or what you may or may not be speaking to. So uh, there, there's, that's why it's just kind of open as far as like, it's not hardcore evidence of anything conclusive. But it's just interesting when you do get any anything that kind of uh, applies to the the history or the location of where you're at. Uh, just like the one time where it definitely said that I was, you know, in a Pythias temple. Uh, yeah. I mean, to me, that was probably like like one of the more uh, relevant captures from that video. Well, and the word Pythias is not likely to be bleeding out of your FM band somewhere. Absolutely not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, so it kind of seemed like maybe this skeleton is named Patrick. Was that your take as well? <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I kind of wondered that, but I, I've I've been getting the name Patrick on a pretty regular basis uh, the past few times that I've been out doing any type of experiments like that. So uh, I, I don't know. It's it's possible. It definitely told me I could call it Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, they said a lot of things, uh, some of which were not very nice. And uh, yeah of them told you to get out yeah yeah and like i said you know who's to say who i was talking to at that moment uh i, I always like to think that if i was in their situation uh i would i would be i'd wreck all kinds of havoc um on a ghost box or a ouija board i would definitely disrupt some uh you know 16 year olds birthday parties <laughs> <laughs> well, why not yeah it's like what are they gonna do kill you Exactly. <laughs> so for our yeah. listeners that, that haven't checked it out, uh, all of this is on your website, which is paraholics.com. 
Yeah. The, uh, the posting on that is uh, Bones of, the Bones of Secret Societies. That talks about your interest in bones from your childhood on up to finding the skeleton. The video that you guys are talking about and then further information about the building and uh, the fraternal order as well. Yeah. And the interesting thing, too, to find out that that building was built on an old cemetery. I mean, there's just so many layers to that that city block in Columbus that many people are not aware of. So it's it's a, definitely have a has an interesting history. Okay, just out of curiosity, you have the skeleton now. I mean, is it in your house? Yes. Yeah, it is. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's not yeah. creepy? Well, I guess if I really thought about it, it, it is kind of creepy, but uh, I, I don't look at him at this point as or her as a, uh, a permanent resident. So I, I, I like to think that this period of time uh, that I'm, I'm just providing a, uh, a path to a, a better resolution for this poor person um because i i don't feel like where it was was a good place and i'm hoping that at least when i'm done with it it's going to at least pay some better tribute to their their final resting place <laughs> yeah you might even end up making friends with this person who knows well you know <laughs> i need all the friends i can get at this point <laughs> <laughs> well for me the bigger question is does your wife know that the skeleton's there no <laughs> uh oh <laughs> well well, parts of it. Parts? Yeah. The head was, um, the, the lodge had been broken into over the years. And I think probably someone got in and tried to take the skull. And uh, it received um, quite a bit of damage. It was broken into about five pieces. So uh, I, I gathered all those up. And I've, I have those stored in a uh, locked case. So, but, but everything's there. So it'll, it'll all get delivered to the uh, university as soon as I make those arrangements. Do you have any guess on how many skeletons like this at various fraternal orders are floating around? Well, uh, just doing a quick internet search, I found all kinds of stories of people inheriting, you know, these buildings and finding these, these skeletons or finding the remains of, of these artifacts, like in somebody's attic and so forth. So there's, there's a long history with these skeletons just kind of turning up and people freaking out and a local law enforcement officer that I was talking to in Bartholomew County, uh, their reaction when I told them this whole thing was just priceless. Uh, (laughs) It definitely raises some eyebrows, you know, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in just the history of that whole process of, of those skeletons um, being acquired and their uses. And you can even trace it back to the, the resurrection men that they called them, the grave robbers in England. I mean, this has been kind of a strange practice that, you know, not many people know about, especially in early American history. So I'm, I'm wanting to kind of delve into that more and find out which other groups also used uh, human skeletons. I know I'm, I'm pretty sure that the Odd Fellows did as well. Well, so um, I'm wanting to put together and kind of investigate into this a little bit deeper and see how much uh, information I can gather. Well, it'd be interesting to hear about that. And yeah. Also, uh, when you do find out anything about this skeleton, we'd love to hear back from you. On that. Oh, yeah. I'd love to give you guys an update. That would be great. Well, and yeah. thank you so much for making the, the best possible resolution for your, your skeletal friend. I think that, you know, in, in the big picture, that's really a wonderful service that you're doing for them. Yeah, it, it, I can't tell you how many times of the past 11 years, it's really bothered me that, that knowing that that skeleton was up there. And of course, my imagination has always led me to the worst on, on what it was used for, which, you know, it may not be as, as uh, dark or as spooky as, as what I kind of imagine after doing further research into it, but it still is kind of unnerving that that was even an acceptable practice. Um, and it's not to say, obviously, that the Knights of Pythias or the Odd Fellows, you know, did anything illegal in their method of atta- obtaining it. But like I said, just the companies that used to provide these things, um, it's really, really strange. And um, I don't know, I would, I would have a hard time getting up for work every day if I knew that's what, that was my job, that's for sure. Well, it's an incredible story. And I don't know what to say to your wife, but maybe you won't even hear this until after it's up at the uh, university. Here's the best part about it. When I first told her about the potential of me acquiring this thing, her initial reaction was, you just want it for bragging rights. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this has been really interesting. Uh, Hey, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. 
Thanks for listening to our 2020 Halloween special. And thanks to all of our contributors, particularly Matthew Jackson and Chris McDaniel for doing telephone interviews with us. Special thanks to the Brown County Inn for their ongoing sponsorship, which makes programming like this possible. You can hear more of our podcasts at browncountyhour.com, on iTunes, Spotify, and on WFHB Community Powered Public Radio.